If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. Today, we're going to be chatting with Brad Wolf about how to solve the people problems in your organization. Now, what I'm going to say next may sound like I'm bragging, and maybe I am just a little bit, but I curate my guests very, very carefully and stringently for this podcast. I regularly receive solicitations from publicists and sometimes people themselves who want to be on the podcast, and I'll tell you that I turn most of them down because I am committed to providing the absolute highest level of insight, utility, and value as a return on your investment of time. And equally important, I am committed to finding guests who are interesting people, people I want to talk to and people you want to talk to. You have a lot of demands on your time and your attention, and you deserve great guests. So while I get a lot of requests to be on the podcast, I also cold call potential guests that I think you would enjoy hearing. If there's a topic I want us to cover and a preeminent expert on that topic, well, I owe it to you to approach that person. Now, it's more work for me and for my podcast colleagues, Brianna and Caitlin, but let me tell you that it's worth it. So I pursued today's guest, Brad Wolf of PeopleMax. I sought him out after learning about his book, People Problems, How to Create People Solutions for a Competitive Advantage. So I was particularly taken by his assertion that all organizational problems are really just people problems. And not only did I say amen to that, but I reached out to him and said, Brad, I want you to be on the podcast. And he responded almost immediately and said, "Um, I'm flattered, but I don't know if this is going to be a good fit. I pretty much work with for-profit businesses and you're doing nonprofit stuff and, you know, it might not be a great fit for your audience. So let me just say that once he did that, you know, when you want something, you can't get it, you want it even more. So to say the least, I wanted it even more. So I convinced him that much like in the for-profit world, in the nonprofit sector, all problems are people problems too. And I assured Brad that we would absolutely benefit from his expertise if he agreed to be a guest. 
So, to say the least, while I feel lucky to introduce every single guest, I feel like I hit the jackpot by having Brad on today. Hey, Brad, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dolph. I'm honored to be here. I do have to share with you that most people, when they, when I email them, they're either a, kind of a flat no or a really enthusiastic yes, but not something as diplomatic as what you gave me, but also made me really go, yeah, this guy gets it. I got to have him on the podcast. <laughs> I, I, I get it. I mean, that's, that, that is human psychology. And I'm just up front. I just want to make sure with anything that it's, it's a win-win. If it's not a win-win, then there's just no point in it. So once you explain to me why I would be a uh, guest that would add some value, then I was all for it. And I appreciate how you communicated that to me. Like I said, I'm really thrilled to have you on. And I would love for us to maybe start the conversation. If you could share just a little bit with me about your origin story of PeopleMax. Great point. So how far back do you want me to go? Birth? Somewhere between birth and walking would be just fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was actually born a, a boy and uh, grew up. And actually, interestingly, part of my origin story is, you know, I grew up in a family. I was the fourth of uh, four children. And it was a difficult childhood. You know, all of us had definitely a challenging childhood with a lot of emotional. It wasn't an emotionally healthy. It was a dysfunctional family. Not that those are unusual. And I think that is part of the origin story that's important because I learned a lot of habits and, and how I thought, felt, and behaved that were actually ineffective, ineffective and got in my way. So the personal challenges that I've had in communicating, connecting, getting clear on what I wanted, staying focused, bouncing, you know, being persistent, gritty, learning and adjusting, managing my ego, all these things came from a backdrop of really struggling mightily in the beginning. So I think that really is a key part of my origin story. So I was very disconnected. When I went to college, all I knew is I wanted to get a degree and make a lot of money, et cetera, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and I was disconnected from really my, I wasn't internally focused. I was externally, I don't have any clue as to what to do. Let me get advice. I decided to, I started off in engineering, realized I was going to study too much. And I was like, what's the point of being in college if I'm studying all the time? I'm just being real. <laughs> so I decided to major in business, but I had no idea what area. So I got opinions and people said, you know, accounting degree, accounting degree. That's the most marketable degree. You can always do something else. So I said, okay, accounting degree. Interestingly, I graduated with honors and passed my CPA exam shortly out of college. Now, the thing about what I did as an accountant, those elements of getting a degree and passing the CPA exam had to do with accounting theory and principles, had nothing to do with the practice of accounting. And there's an expression in accounting that accountants who are low in detail get fired. Those that are high in creativity go to jail. Now, I didn't go to jail, but I got fired a number of times before I realized, well, you know what? Maybe accounting is not the right field for me. So I went into sales, sold insurance and investments for five years, and then I went into recruiting. And that is really a key step because now I'm dealing with organizational results based on the people that they have. And in that 20 plus years, I saw so many situations of Half the time, the hires that companies make don't work out. And quite frankly, 
companies that have that brag about low turnover, often they shouldn't be bragging because they're just keeping people that are disengaged and doing a poor job at what they're doing. So I was able to see patterns in the connection between how the leaders thought and behaved and the results that they had. And I really started seeing clear patterns that leaders who were so convinced in buying their own message about that they were so good at judge, so good at judging character of people, so good at judging fit, so good at managing people would have such poor results. So that really got me fascinated with the topic of people are the whole key and people are, and companies are doing it wrong more than they're doing it right. So you said you really noticed that leaders within the companies or within the organizations kind of set a tone and you could tell which ones were going to be effective at recruiting and managing and running the organization and which ones weren't. What types of things would you see that would kind of make you sort leaders out in that way? Great question, Dolph. I would say a key thing, and it wasn't obvious to me at first, but it became obvious over the years, is how well that they were aware of and managed their ego. When the ego's driving, they're the expert. And, the, you know, their judgment is the right judgment. If it doesn't work out, it wasn't because of their judgment. Their command and control tendencies that they're the boss and if they don't agree, it's their way or the highway led to turnover and a lot of bad decisions. But when a decision went wrong, it was always some other thing that had nothing to do with them. Well, my decision was right, but I but this happened. So I saw clearly the ego was the ego was the key element that drove a lot of success. And the most successful leaders were ones that were very open and I don't know. Let's look at this situation and let's discuss it. Because at the end of the day, I don't have all the answers. I can always learn and get better. And that was a key element that taught me so much is the I'm I'm the smartest, best equipped person, and that's why I'm the boss, versus I'm just a person that's in this position. How can I get better knowing that I'm I'm flawed, I'm imperfect? So really kind of leaders approaching it from that position of, okay, I don't know everything and I'm here to help figure it out. That's, yeah, that openness and humility that at the end of the day, I'm just another human being with my, quote, strengths and weaknesses and I make mistakes and I'm wrong. A lot of my beliefs are inaccurate and a lot of my assumptions are inaccurate. So how can I keep learning from that? And teaming up with other people and listening to their viewpoints because they, everyone has some value in, in, well, not everyone, but a lot, <laughs> everyone's viewpoint doesn't always have equal value, but other viewpoints of people that are qualified can have a lot of value. And my viewpoint alone is very dangerous. That's <laughs> what I would say. <laughs> and you also mentioned, and, and I, it's interesting. I not really thought about it this way. You also mentioned there's a lot of organizations that brag about how low their turnover is. But in reality, for some organizations, that just means that they have mediocre, even bad, poor employees that are sticking around too long. Right. Often that just means that they're keeping people that aren't working out a long time instead of addressing the issue and everyone's losing. So that can be a negative symbol. 
everyone stays in the same job here for 30 years. They don't, they don't advance. They don't do anything else. And you talk to the people and they complain. All they do is talk about all the negative things. Why, why do you stay? Well, because of this pension or because I've only got this many more years before I retired. Or There's always an excuse for why they tolerate a dysfunctional, unrewarding relationship. I have to share with you the thing that drives me just absolutely berserk in the nonprofit sector. And it's what I refer to as promotion by seniority. So, you know, someone comes in and they're a case manager and say a five person on a five person team. And eventually they become the most senior case manager, you know, and then when the supervisor leaves, there's just this expectation. Oh, well, I'm the most senior case manager. I should get the position, even though maybe the newest case manager is best qualified or none of those case managers are well qualified to be the supervisor. But there's this expectation. And often then I think management just does not want to disappoint. And instead of having the tough conversation with the person and saying, well, here are the growth areas we'd need to see before we could really consider promoting you and we'll help you work on that, but we need to bring someone else in to be the manager. They're like, okay, yeah, you know, you can be the manager. And then they have an even bigger people problem. That's a great point. Companies dangle promotions into management as a reward. And that's a danger because it should not be as specifically a reward it should be based on who's fit for that and wants the job, both. Because sometimes someone may be fit, but they just don't want the job. There's salespeople that would take a big pay cut, for example, to become a sales manager. It, it shouldn't be used as a reward. The other thing that I also think we see a lot in the nonprofit sector, I'd be willing to bet it happens you know, for for-profits as well, is sometimes you take your highest performer and you make them a manager, but they're not really well suited to be a manager. And, and I mean, I'll be frank and say, I think as I've matured, I've certainly become a better manager, but you know, I was a really extraordinary grant writer in my first job. And so they made me a manager at like 24, 25 without probably the emotional maturity necessary to be a manager. And consequently, I was a, probably a pretty bad manager at the time. Well, that's another very common mistake companies make is if so-and-so is an excellent producer at something, then they're going to be a great manager. Actually, it often works the reverse because someone that's outstanding producer at something or a technician at something, often they're focused on just getting the job done. Not and a manager's job is to get the job done through others, not through yourself. And their patience and expectations of other people that maybe have lesser skill or passion or talent or whatever often has a negative effect because someone that only knows extreme success doesn't know what most people deal with in struggling to get better. So it actually, more often than not, uh, is an earmark for someone that may not be as good a manager. Right. Oh, absolutely. I, without a doubt, I think individual performers, so if you function best as, a, as an army of one, probably don't function well as a manager. Right. And if you look in sports, a lot of times the ones who were the star players fail as coaches and the best coaches were mediocre or poor players. <laughs> the halo effect is a big thing in human psychology. And we tend to, as human beings, these are, these are general faults or, or uh, flaws in human psychology that, that, that we're all vulnerable to. Human psychology applies to all of us. It isn't these other people, it's all of us. And if we see someone excel at something, the natural tendency for all of us is to attribute other pos attribute positive characteristics to things we know nothing about. 
the horn effect takes over too. If we see someone failing or performing poorly in something, we will tend to have negative predictions about other things that have nothing to do with it. Both of them, you cannot, the fact that someone's good at X, that's all you can say is they're good at X. You cannot make any assumptions about Y, Z, or any other area just from knowing they're really good at X. I am so glad that you reminded me and our listeners of that because I think you're 100% right. So often we see someone who's bad at one or two things and we're like, oh, well, they can't do anything. And we write them off. Right. The people that all of us could be top performers or fail depending on how well a job aligns with our innate core nature. So you can take any person and, and put them and to set them up to become a failure or a success based on that. None of us are inherently good or bad of success or a failure. Those, that's, those are myths. Right. So we've unpacked some of that. Let's keep moving forward with your origin story. Okay. So another big part of my origin story is just my own business failure. It was interesting. Uh, I was co-owner in a recruiting firm. We had 14 employees. We were growing. We were making really good money. You know, my ego was puffed up. I mean, I thought, man, this is such an indicator of how smart I am, how capable I am, how well I manage people, how good, how good I am at making decisions. I, I, I bought into this whole story about that, how well we were doing was because of these great traits on my end. And that was the fall of 2008. In January, we noticed a sudden reduction in hiring demand. And between March and September of 2009, we laid off all our employees, and then in December of 2009, we closed the company. So literally in 12 months, you went from top of the world to don't have a company. Yes. And I was distraught. I couldn't understand how in only 12 months I can go from feeling so confident that I had this highly successful business that was going to continue on in smooth sailing, nothing but growth, to literally being out of a business, having no job having a lot of debt, having a tremendous amount of self-doubt and feeling like a failure, having no clue as to what I'm going to do next. I mean, it was a dark, dark period. And it really helped instigate me questioning the assumptions that I had about my greatness because other competitors hung in there and made it and did okay and then emerged stronger. So I couldn't, if everyone went out of business, I can use that as an excuse, but I couldn't do that. It was clear that that's not the case. It had something to do with, with me and the way I did things. In social work, there's this concept of cognitive dissonance, which is when the way we perceive ourselves is different from the way other people perceive us. And it really sounds like cognitive dissonance was a bus that just ran right into you. Right. And, and the, the thing that I'm grateful about, Dolph, I did not choose to explain it away with excuses about, well, they're doing well. They just happen to have some better clients or that, that, you know, I could have come up. Here's the thing about excuses. They're infinite in the number we can come up with and anyone will do. They don't even have to be good because we're like, yeah, yeah. Okay. That's, that was, that's it. Yeah. That explains it. But I chose to say, let me not be asked myself. This is a time to really be honest. And the truth is I was inflexible. I was ego driven. Uh, I made a lot of assumptions. I managed people with command and control when we disagreed. Well, you know, clearly you don't know what you're talking about because I have a X number of years history of success. I mean, I did all those things that I'm talking about leaders that run into trouble did. Um, so 
that was really helpful because I, not only did I notice these patterns in other people, but, but I even more powerful was I had to look, I chose to look myself in the mirror and say, that's me. So that was the, the clincher to the whole thing was my recognition that I created my own failure because of not following the principles of success that I felt somehow I was above or I'm the exception or the ego tells us that. Yeah, but in my case, this is different and here's why. So, so after you recognize that, how did you reconcile it or recalibrate? That's a great question. It's a process. It wasn't like I woke up one day and saw the light. I think a, a key part was it took me a while to realize, hey, there, there, I have a part in this. And just over the years, having some really good advisors, coaches, uh, professional coaches and uh, informal coaches, doing a lot of self-development work really was helpful. A lot of which is an ongoing thing is personal growth slash development and reading, attending different workshops and realizing, wow, I'm the problems I have are related to how I think and do things. They're, they're, they're not random. So fortunately I was open that because I didn't want to keep repeating them. It was very clear. I, I'm going to keep repeating them if I don't change because the world's not going to change to, to adapt to what I want. That I was always clear on. The world's not going to change for me. I, fortunately, I knew that lesson, but I, I knew it, but I tested it a lot. I also think you're so right that a lot of it just takes time and reflection to really kind of reconcile it. I, I, I've talked about it some on here, but I had just really a major career meltdown that you know could potentially have been career-ending. And it took me probably five years of processing it before I was at a place where I could fully acknowledge. I mean, I started off being able to acknowledge what some of my issues were, but really acknowledge, you know, what role realistically I played in that meltdown and, you know, what I need to do to avoid meltdowns like that. But it, I mean, it really took five years before I could like publicly and openly talk about it. Yes. And I think there's a lot of myths out there. And one of the myths out there is that we should learn a lot quicker than we do. The truth is the smartest people you'll ever meet are extremely slow learners when it really comes down to it. I'm a, just a dreadfully snail-paced learner when it comes to a lot of these life lessons. I mean, I, I'm like, are you kidding me? It takes me that long to learn these things? I mean, it's now a point of humor. So, Brad, I have to tell you, I've been hit by a car three times. And I don't mean three car accidents. I, as a human being, have been hit by a car three times. I am definitely a slow learner. Or you're a car magnet. It could be that too. Well, you you know, like there comes a point in life, and I I was much, much younger than I am now, when you just have to accept the law of, of velocity and mass, you know, and you just have to accept, hey, even if you got the right away, sometimes it's better to stay where you are and not get hit. Well, can I be assured that, that you're not a ghost, that, that this is really a physical form that's alive still? I mean, <laughs> can, well, well, so it's funny, my, my, my uh, Skype camera is doing something funky. So I think I'm a little shaded right now, but I can assure you I'm definitely not a ghost. Okay. I just, I just wanted to make sure after getting hit by a car three times, just you must feel like you're pretty lucky. 
if you've been hit three times and you're and you're you, you seem like I don't see any missing limbs. I don't see a there's no there's no obvious signs of brain damage. Well, I just so, said so I have to tell you, two of them were scrapes. <laughs> Only one of them hospitalized me, but two of them were really just more scrapes than you know. After the one that hospitalized me, I was a little more cautious, and then I just got scrapes. But now I, I again, you're like at some point in your life, you're like, okay, I've learned my lesson. It's a lot bigger than me, and I'm not going to force it. Right. So a lot of the life lessons that seem obvious now, it's amazing they're not obvious when you're going through them because the e- the ego is the thing that tricks us. That's I don't consider the ego bad. It's just there, and it's a deterrent to our growth. That's why we need to always watch it and be aware of it because my ego didn't go away. My ego will tell me these grand things about myself and – Make you know want to tell me how confident I'm 100% sure this is the right decision and eh, nonsense. It's it's just and the thing is the good news, all humans are designed the same. We come equipped with the same physical and and psychological makeup. The the the, the human design manual is the same for everyone, regardless of race, religion, gender, blah blah blah. It's it's the same manual. That's the good news is because once we learn the manual, we can start now making some real progress. So, so with those people problems in our organizations, how do we go about making some progress? That's a very broad question. Can you narrow it down a little bit more specific? Because I, I can start in so many areas with that. And that's fair. Cause I, I know our time is limited today. You know, so for example, you know, you, you've talked about how when we bring too much ego with us, to our organization, it trips us up and it trips other people up. So maybe if we start there, I mean, if, if we think about that as one of the key people problems we might see in an organization, how do we help people troubleshoot that problem? Let me back up because your question, as I think about it now, because I was like, where do I start? Is actually a good question. So I don't know if you can delete that minute or whatever. If you don't mind, I just love to leave that in and, you know, let listeners kind of see us running you know around what? the you circle the for a process, minute. You know what, you say the real process, I say something, then I realize, you know what, now that I think about it, yeah, that is a real process of, of being human. You take a path and you, then I reflected and I realized that's actually a good question. I, I, I was looking more to narrow it and get specific, but that's a good question. So, yeah, let's leave it in there. Great. That, that the real life <laughs> is not clean and rehearsed and everything is just you know where you're going you you take a path and then you go oh, i just tripped let me just back up and realize that i i trip so i think the key is to realize number one all problems are people problems at their root the the traditional view is we've got processes technology and people are the three components that make an organization and we tend to separate it but they're really not separate. And what I mean by that is humans design the processes, operate the processes, fail to adjust and fix the processes. So the processes are all human-based. And if you have the right process but the wrong people that aren't doing it right, the process doesn't work. Same exact thing with technology. So behind every process and technology problems are people problems. There are no, that's the root cause. That's so when we're trying to fix technology problems and, and process problems by addressing the process and technology, we're missing the root cause. We're treating the symptoms because the symptoms are the things that we see. We don't see root causes directly in most cases. So at the end of the day, there isn't a problem you can have out there that at, at, at its root isn't 
a people problem. So you start with the recognition that there is no cause, there is no cause or solution that's not people based. So stop trying to fix everything with, I'm going to bring in the right process and all that, that it's great for consultants and everything that I'm going to fix the process without having to address first the root cause, which is how people think, feel, and do things. So that, I think that's number one. Second thing is to realize that the leaders, everything starts with the leaders. As leaders, the natural thing as human beings is we want to point fingers and, you know, this person isn't doing this and that person isn't doing that and blah, 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 and kind of divorce ourselves as if we're separate from the problem. The truth is the leader is part of it. Because at the end of the day, the leader hired the person. The leader is involved with making sure the, they're, they're doing the job right, setting direction, addressing problems, keeping the person, keeping the person in the same role versus another role. At the end of the day, there isn't any problem with a subordinate that doesn't, at, the, at its root, have to do with the, the leader. Plus, as a leader, if I'm a leader in an organization, the only one I have any control over that I can impact directly is myself. So it's always the leader starting with themselves. And that's number one. It starts with me as a leader. The second thing is, it isn't what I say, it's what I do. If I'm going to say anything, well, you need to listen first and understand what someone's saying before interrupting or responding and really understand what they're saying. If I'm not doing the same thing, I'm just, I'm making it worse. I'm better off saying nothing and just violating my own advice. So if I'm not walking the talk, I'm better off just being silent because at least I'm not a hypocrite then. I'm just ineffective. I could not agree with you more. It's like, you know, if you're in the nonprofit sector, if you're the executive director, you show up late every day by 25 or 30 minutes, and then you complain people are late or people are late to meetings or whatever. Well, you know, you've set the tone. You've said, well, if you waltz in here at you know, 8.30 instead of 8, it's okay. Right. And look, I'm not here to lambast leaders. I, a leader is just, a, is just another human being that happens to be in a position of authority that has a greater influence over the culture than someone else. But a leader at the, at the end of the day is just another human being with the same, we all have our own things that we're better at than others. And we, we have our personal development path, which is the things that, we're, that are helping us and the things that are getting in our way. The key thing I think is our professional success in anything is based on our own personal development. They're one and the same thing. We are the only tool we have and we take ourselves everywhere we go. There is no other tool. Our ability to impact, um, our ability to make decisions, our ability to, to deal with difficult situations is 100% related to our own personal development, how aware we are, self-aware we are, how well we manage our egos, how focused and committed we are to take action on what we, on what we need to do rather than put it off and make excuses. These are all personal development issues. That's the only work we can ever really truly do. Our business life is just a tool for our personal development. And, and we're never going to go further than our personal development allows us. Absolutely. Could not agree more. And I've always thought of, um, I've always thought of this almost as a toolbox. I know you said, you know, that there are tool, it's our tool, but I've always kind of thought of this as a toolbox and everywhere I go, I put new skills and abilities and competencies in my toolbox. And that's also why I said, gee, when I was 24, 25 and was a first time manager, 
I probably did not have, I didn't have the maturity. I, my toolbox was not, did not have enough tools in it for me to lead a department, you know, but over time you get more tools in the box and you're like, Hey, wait, I've seen this before. Let me pull, you know, you know, gee, I really need a plumber's wrench for this. Exactly. And that's the other, there's a lot of myths out there that I think distract us away from those truths. And one of them is the talent myth. You either innately have some talent or you don't. And if you do, you're going to be succeed because of your talent. And if you don't, you're not going to succeed regardless of what you do. That's been debunked time and time again, that if you have a great talent, you've developed that talent. If you were, if you inherited the ultimate talent in the world in something, if you don't put in the work and keep getting better, that talent is never going to be realized. And that, that takes time and repetition. You've heard of the 10,000 hour rule. That's based on research that people become masters in anything. There's no shortcut to it. It's usually going to be about 10 years of continuous get in there and, and make the effort, fail, fall, learn from it and get better, have struggles and question whether or not you can do it and all these other things. The hero's journey is a journey of a lot of falling and doubts and emotional difficulty. You know, I, I forgot which comedian said it, but some comedian said, um, I was an overnight success after doing stand up in dirty bars for 20 years. You know, it, it, you know, everyone's like, oh my gosh, this person did it overnight when in fact they've been working on it for a decade or two decades. That's one of the myths that I think hold us back a lot is, and that hits cultures because then we have a culture that you've got to always do the right thing, make the right decision, take the right action, or you're punished. Growth happens in an environment where people feel safe. All the research psychologically is very clear. One of the most important things a leader can do is to set up a safe environment for people to be authentic, acknowledge their difficulties and their weaknesses, and openly work on it with support and encouragement and feedback. You're never going to get it unless you do that. And that means that the leader openly acknowledges weaknesses and openly shows a commitment to work on them and, 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 and encourages honest feedback from others related to it. The culture of an organization is, is, is created by the leaders. If, you don't, if the leaders are complaining about the toxic culture, they created it. They should look in the mirror if they complain about toxic culture. Could not agree more. Brad, I have loved having you on and I'm not letting you go until I ask you the off the map question. Every guest gets asked an off-the-map question, and it is typically something that has nothing to do with the topic of the show. But today's might actually kind of slide into the theme of the show, because I wanted to ask you, what are your daily habits, and how do they impact your life? <laughs> you couldn't have asked me a better question that's, not, that's on the map. Your off-the-map question was completely on the map. I know. It's a fail. I failed. See, I can own it when I fail. Okay. Do you see this book? Oh, now I do. The Power of Habits. Yeah. I'm a certified coach. I do a lot of leadership and executive coaching. This is the essence right here, the word habit. And I write about it, speak about it. That's the essence. The habit is the, is the structure that allows your whatever you want to do to, to, to be effective. That's one of the big problems is we, I want to do this, I want to do that. Until you build the habit, the habit is the thing that makes it sustainable and real. So whatever experiences we're having in life directly pertains to our habits of how we think and, and feel and behave. And it's habitual. It is, very rarely are we getting off the habit track and just completely just 
making a thought through aware decision that isn't based on our habits. Right. So you started off by really personalizing it. So I'd love for you to personalize this as well. What are your daily habits? Okay. It starts in the morning. I get up at seven. I'm not an extremely early riser. Um, get a cup of coffee. And this is a daily habit. Meditate, visualize, do praying. Then I do 20 minutes of yoga. Then I um, go to work. I sit down. I I do a, a visualization of, of, of what's my vision of what's important to me. And then I map out my day and I, fo- I, everything I do is based on what are the thing, what are the big rocks, the big key goals that are important to me and does it support it? So I make my priorities and I even use a habit technology software that sends me reminders and things like that. Um, because habits are all about building the brain wiring from repetition and developing a positive association because you're having success in what you're doing, which takes continuous uh, effort. So I have key habit areas where I'm struggling that I put my focus on. And right now my big thing, and I've gotten so much better on it, is to stay focused on the task I'm on without distracting away onto something else. That's a big one for me personally. Yeah, and I think in this day and age where we have a phone and a computer that's dinging us both of them at the same time all the time. That's tough because we really find ourselves chasing the monkey of whatever's going across the screen. Yes. And it's a, it's a process because I'm tempted. I've just, just by sheer habit, I stay focused a lot better now and I'll just, I'll, I'll get out of email. I won't get on the internet for a while. If I have an idea, I'll just write it down real quick so I don't lose it rather than chasing after it. And it's just a process and commitment. Then I reflect, ref- experience isn't what makes us smarter. Experience that's reflected on with adjustments based on a reflection makes us smarter. Experience without reflection doesn't do a whole lot to make us smarter. Mm-hmm. So I wanna ask you one last question. Um, you mentioned you're currently using a tech or an app to help you, to help remind you and reinforce your habits. What, what app or tech is that? I use something and I'm a reseller because um, of it. It's, it's through a company called Habit Technologies. And it's a way of personalizing the things you want to work on and setting up very specifically what it is you want to do, what it is, what your goal is, what behavior you're going to make and set up reminders for it. And then at the end of the day, reflect on how you did with it. And just through sheer repetition, you develop the routine because it's about routines. A habit is a routine. And the nice thing is that habit then makes it easy because if it's a routine, it's not hard to get on the phone and make 20 calls that you know you need to make or to sit down and do this busy work that you really don't like to do or whatever. If you do it all the time and it becomes a habit, you're like, oh, okay. I would say the single biggest key to putting whatever good intentions we have into action is to build the habit. Until we have build a habit, it's not sustainable. It's likely not to be continued on. Very cool. So, Brad, if folks want more information on Habit Technologies, can they get that at your website, or where do they get that? I would say email me directly at B-W-O-L-F-F, that's two F's as in Frank, at P-E-O-P-L-E-M-A-X-I-M-I- Z-E-R-S dot com. That's bwolf at peoplemaximizers.com. The next, the next time I'm on, I'll give the story on why it's such a long email, but I, I think we're running out of time. My email addresses are like 
Dolphin Successful Nonprofits and Dolphin Goldenberg Group, and they don't fit on any form. They're too long. But Brad, I am so glad you've agreed to speak with me today. I got so much value out of this. I am sure that our listeners did as well. Now, I want to make sure that our listeners know that you have generously offered a free ebook at your website, and the ebook's title is Maximize Your People, Productivity, and Profit. And they can download it by visiting peoplemaximizers.com forward slash maximize dash profits. And of course, you know, listeners, we're going to link that in the show notes. So if for any reason you try to put it in and it does not work, go to our show notes. You can also buy Brad's best selling book, People Problems, How to Create People Solutions for a Competitive Advantage. And you can buy that on Amazon or at your independent Brooks and Mortar bookseller. It's a great read and I'd suggest you pick it up. And let me just say that if today's show piqued your interest, make sure you mosey on over to Brad's website, peoplemaximizers.com. Hey, Brad, thank you again for being on today. Thank you, Dolph. Were you trying to help the people problem in your office get their necktie out of the shredder while I was sharing the link to Brad's free ebook? Don't worry about it. Go ahead and finish helping that person get free from the shredder. We've got the hookup at SuccessfulNonprofits.com. You can just go there, and I promise you all the links you need will be right there. Listeners, that's our show for the week. I hope you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. I am not an accountant or attorney, and neither I nor the Goldberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This material has been provided for informational purposes only, is not intended to provide, and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. Always consult a qualified, licensed professional about such matters.